You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. O good shepherd, we ask that you would abide with us in your word and send your Holy Spirit so that we have ears to hear and that we in turn would abide in you. Amen. We are in 1 John today, 1 John 3. So, in a special place, I keep safe and tucked away three tickets to an NBA basketball game that will go down in my life as one of my all-time favorite moments as a father. It was spring in 2013, and the Hicks family was days away from uprooting our lives to move from Denver, Colorado to the foreign shores of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I was feeling heavy-hearted about the move, especially as it would impact my family. My two older boys uh, were big basketball fans, and I thought that I would surprise them with a big splurge. I set up the evening by telling them that to celebrate One of our last nights in Denver, we were going to go to a mall on the south side and spend some time at a Lego store, the extent of the evening. And in my boys' minds, that was already fun enough. And so we went to the store um, and had a blast. But our time was running short, and it was getting dark. And I told the boys that we needed to get home and go to bed. And they were heartbroken. They wanted more time at the store. They were begging and pleading, but I didn't budge. And so, teary-eyed and sniffly, they got into the car and off we went. It was already dark and the boys dozed off on the way home, which was perfect for my plan. We headed straight up Interstate 25, straight into the heart of downtown Denver. And after about 20 minutes, the boys woke up and saw the lights in the tall buildings and said, Dad, where are we? And I said, we're downtown. They said, but I thought we were going home. And right then, I chucked two kid-sized Denver Nuggets jerseys to them and said, I have a surprise. We're not going home. We're going to the Nuggets Thunder game. And they freaked out. They couldn't believe it. They were so thrilled. And it ended up being a perfect night. The Nuggets, they won by a buzzer beater. We ate all kinds of junk food. Our seats were great. And the arena was loud and crazy just like it should be. But there was something really funny that I will never forget that happened uh, back in the car in the moments after I told the boys. One of my sons yelled out something so spontaneous, so straight from the heart. Zero percent of it was contrived. It was his instinctive reaction to the moment. As soon as I chucked the jerseys back to the boys and they realized what was going on, one of them who was a bit of a troublemaker in our home, blurted out in ecstasy, oh my gosh, Dad, this is the most amazing thing ever. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is so wonderful, Dad. I promise, I promise, I will obey you forever for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I will tell you uh, that that funny picture, number one, became immediate sermon illustration father, and I was like, "Woo, thank you, I appreciate that. It's actually that whole scene is the picture of what John is communicating to his hearers. True obedience, true Christian obedience, true Christian love, it springs inevitably, spontaneously, from the overflow of a heart that comprehends the immensity 
of the love of God. Just like the overflow of my son's heart upon receiving an unimaginably huge, unexpected gift, so it is with Christian love. Theologians after the Reformation would call this the new obedience that springs not out of compulsion, not out of duty, but out of spontaneous joy and gratitude. John indicates that if you have truly and really apprehended the love of God, it can't help but erupt into obedience toward God and love of one's neighbor. The love of God produces love for neighbor inevitably and causally. Love begets love. Looking at this great verse in verse 16, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love begets love. You know, when I've read this verse in the past, I used to think of this more strictly as a call to a willingness to die for someone else, to sacrifice my life for theirs, like preaching the gospel in a hostile country or throwing myself in front of a bus for somebody else. And certainly this call is part of what the verse is talking about, but the picture is much broader actually, the scope much wider. Verse 17, it pans out. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The willingness to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters extends well beyond just a willingness to die for someone else. It extends to a sacrificial kind of living for others. And you know what? Sacrificial is the right word here. Paul, he uses this very language in Romans 12 to describe what John is saying here. You know, when we've apprehended the depth and the riches and wisdom of the love of God for sinners in Christ Jesus... We offer our whole selves as, pay attention to this language, by the way, living sacrifices. All the Old Testament imagery is being conjured up in Paul and here in John's epistle. Picture a stone altar and an animal brought, and don't miss this, laid down, slaughtered, and offered up to God as a sacrifice. Except here, Paul and John describe a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that doesn't die but stays alive. In Christ, we don't merely lay down our lives through our dying. We lay down our lives through our living. The life of the Christian, freed up in Christ, is able to willingly give up its entire self for others. John's describing a totally new outlook on life. No longer do we make sacrifices on stone altars at specific times and specific places. Rather, because of the love of God, in Christ, all of life, the entire earth, and every other human being becomes a place to give ourselves away. All of life becomes an altar. This means that for the Christian, your true altar is not really there at the table. Look around, look at each other. There is your true altar. For the Christian then, Every last person around you, at church, at home, at work, at school, every last person becomes the context, the place where we lay our lives down. And that means that all your resources, both human and material, exist for the purpose of laying those resources down for others. Nothing's off limits. Everything goes on the altar. Your friend, 
your spouse, your pocketbook, your job, your possessions, your house, your time, your weekends, your recreation. You know, we open up our calendar on our phone. Does this schedule reflect a laying down of my life for others? We look at our check ledger or credit card statements, and do these purchases reflect the kind of freedom in laying my life down for others? And as crazy as this might sound, our sex life in marriage, does it counter the world's dehumanization of God's good gift where people become mere objects for fleshly gratification? Does sex in marriage become a context for mutual self-giving? Or is my apartment or my house, is it a place of hospitality? Can I lay my house down, my kitchen down, my dining room table down? for my brothers and sisters. And all of this kind of begs the question, why don't we lay down our lives as we ought? If all of life is an altar, why do we hold ourselves back? Before I allow the scriptures to answer this, I want to allow John himself to ratchet up the tension to the question that we've proposed here. You see, throughout his epistle, John has presented these kinds of issues in binary categories. He says, you're either this or you're this, black and white, no gray. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. You're either deceived by the spirit of antichrist or you're confessing the true Christ, the son of the father. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. And here, just a few verses before our passage, illustrated in the story of Cain and Abel, either your love of God and neighbor is false and insincere, like Cain, or it's true and fruitful, like Abel. And if you're like me, and you're hearing 1 John honestly, you're hearing these either-or categories. You instinctively start to take inventory and do some self-evaluation. Where do I fall? Which one am I? Am I walking in the light? Am I a true child of God? The reality is, if we're looking at ourselves, evaluating the kind of love that we produce to determine whether or not we're a true child of God, who in the world could stand up to that kind of scrutiny? And you know what John says? If you think you can stand up to that kind of scrutiny, If you think you can sit on the moral high ground, you're a liar. Those are John's words in the first chapter. John's categories, biblically speaking, aren't so much to encourage us to place ourselves within one or the other, but to drive us to the place of a different admission. It's something that philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn put his finger on when he says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But, Solzhenitsyn says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And so once we get brutally honest, we all have to say, I am a child of darkness just as much as I try to think I'm a child of light. I am a child of the devil just as much as I try to think I'm a child of God. I am king just as much as I try to think I am able. But, you see, John knows this. 
He knows that as we hear these categorical claims, our hearts condemn us, which is why he peppers his epistle with what we might call in our tradition comfortable words, words of sweet gospel comfort and assurance. Look with me at verses 19 to 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. The irony is, if we have reason to believe that we don't measure up, and we fall into the category of unrighteousness, God has even more reason. God knows everything. God knows our hearts better than we do, and he knows that our sin and rebellion is even darker. But God is greater than your heart. Get this, people, God's ability, compulsion, and desire to offer you grace and mercy is greater, deeper, and wider than your ability and compulsion and desire to sin. God is greater than your heart. You can't out-sin the love of God. You can't run so far that he can't find you. You can't run so fast that he can't outpace you. You can turn your back on him but he will never turn his back on you. Are you a great sinner? Well, God's grace is greater still. But we turn back to the text, to verse 22, after this reassurance, and we hear these words, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Oh, no, not again. Is God pulling away these comforts by throwing me back on myself? Must I obey and do what pleases him in order to to find and attain his love? But in a shocking move, John doubles back on the gospel again in the next verse, in verse 23. And this is the commandment that you are to obey. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. What? You mean to tell me this, that the rule I'm to obey to verify my status as a child of God, the law I must fulfill, the commandment I am to keep, is to put my faith in Christ? That's the most unrulish rule I've ever heard. It's the most uncommandmenty command that I've ever encountered, which is why the and love one another at the end of the commandment follows almost like an inevitable afterthought rather than some stringent, tyrannical law. Because like my boys in the back of the car on that cool Denver evening, when we apprehend God's love, when we put our faith in Christ, I could obey you forever, Daddy. And John, like the rest of the Bible, doesn't leave us to imagine the shape of God's love or to fashion it for ourselves. He makes it very clear in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Have you ever noticed that maybe part of the reason John sets up the brotherly comparison of Cain and Abel in those earlier verses and then goes on to use the language about laying down our lives for the brothers is to show that Christ's death on the cross actually broke through the binary categories out of the black and white and into the gray where we all really live? According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus' blood speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel. How's this so? See, John compares these two brothers, Cain and Abel, by saying in verse 12, 
Cain's deeds were evil. Abel's deeds were righteous. But Jesus comes along and doesn't simply like Abel offer to God his righteous deeds. Jesus breaks through the binary. Jesus bleeds red into the gray. And in the words of 1 Peter 3, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Jesus, the new and greater Abel, not only offers to God his righteous deeds, Jesus lays his life down for his brother, Cain. Jesus lays his life down for you, for you who seem to be unable to fully place yourself in the category of child of light or child of God. Jesus lived and died for the children of darkness. Jesus lived and died for the children of the devil. Jesus lived and died for you. And maybe, all of a sudden, love doesn't have to be under compulsion. But instead, love runs free in the field that grace purchases. And you can almost hear Jesus say, you have heard it said that the world is your oyster. But I now say to you, the world is your altar. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.